Helmuth von Moltke. I think he's the first recorded guy to have uh, said this. He was a German field marshal, and he was one of the ones that, that, that started off this saying that's a bit familiar in our society, and it, it was this. He said, no plan of operations extends with certainty beyond the first encounter with the enemy's main strength. We sort of boil that down in the English, and we say now, no plan survives contact with the enemy. That's sort of how it's in there. Have you ever heard that saying? No plan survives contact with the enemy? Uh, Winston Churchill, uh, not to be outdone, put it this way. He said, listen, plans are of little importance, but planning is essential. Eisenhower, around the same time, I'm sure, after, Eisenhower said, plans are worthless, but planning... It's everything. You see, he's got this conflict situation going on. But my favorite one uh, for this whole theme on this is, is none other than the great wise man, Mike Tyson. <laughs> when Mike was asked about a quote that he'd made about hitting somebody, this is what he said. Well, look, they were talking about his style, about this oncoming fight. He's going to give you a lot of lateral movement. He's going to move. He's going to dance. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. And I said, everyone has a plan until they get hit. Then, like a rat, they stop in fear and freeze. Kind of like Mike's approach to that whole thing. Here's the thing. All of these quotes and ideas were, were the people that were involved in various kinds of conflict. And here's the thing. You are going to have conflict. I'm going to have conflict. Conflict is going to be a part of our life, whether we're talking about our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our friendships. Conflict is part of life. And, and while our plans need to adjust when the conflict actually happens, it's best if we have a plan. It's helpful if we have a plan as to how is it that we're going to navigate through the conflicts that are bound to come into our life. What's my plan for conflict? How am I going to? I know I'm going to have to adjust. I know I'm going to have to change from first contact with the enemy. But I've got to have a bit of a map, a bit of a plan to set me up ahead of time. So here's the question. When you think about your life and every different sphere of your life, what is your plan to work through conflict? What's your plan? Understand that it's going to adjust, but what is the plan when it comes down to it? Because we don't want to freeze like a rat or run like a rat, as Mike says. Instead, we want to be able to maneuver our way through these conflicts in the most helpful, God-glorifying way that is possible. So what we're going to look at today, as we come down towards the end of the book of Philippians, we're going to look at the first part of chapter 4, if you want to turn to it in your devices. What we're dealing with here is some conflict, external conflict, conflict with other people. And perhaps more difficult and more devastating is internal conflict. The conflicts that we have within our own hearts, within our own minds, the conflicts that we battle within ourselves. So let's take a look at it. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters... You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Udia, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they've contended with me at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book 
of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Do you see the conflicts that he's dealing with there? The, the first one that comes right off the pages is conflict between people. Between, in this case, Udea and Sinki. Sintiki. Sintike, however you want to pronounce it. What happens here in verse 1 is that he sets up what I would call a preemptive strike against disastrous conflict. A preemptive strike against disaster conflict. Verse 1 is a transitional verse, and different scholars will argue where the weight should be in what was said before as we looked at it last week, or the weight is on what it's about to say. And really, it just is a perfect transitional verse because it applies to what we looked at last week. Remember, we talked about it. But it also sets up the scene for handling conflict with this whole idea that the first thing we need to do is if we will set in our environment this kind of an environment, this sort of a situation where it is marked of our relationships and our workplaces and our homes, if we're marked with an attitude of what is love, that's the big one, it appears twice, I love, you are my beloved, you whom I long for, that's the word, the word it means that I'm homesick for, that I, you know that pain that when we've got somebody back home that we, we miss and we haven't seen them for a long time and we long for them, it's that kind of an attitude that goes, that he describes them, you are my joy and my crown, you're the ones that I take great delight in, you're the one that makes my life feel rich, these are the attitudes of the community. And what Paul's reminding them of here is that, listen, we are this community and these are the attitudes that we have towards each other. These are the things that we say to each other. This is the joy that we find in each other. And when we set these things up, and when that is our preemptive experience, when conflict arrives, even in the midst of this, and conflict will arise, then at least we have this to fall back on. At least we can say, look, this, this is the attitude in which we have. This is the harmony that we aim for. And it sets us up to be able to work through the conflicts that will arise with victory. The, the problem, of course, is it's exactly those attitudes and those feelings that sometimes are going to cause the conflicts to be as deep as they actually are. Because, you see, conflict will happen when we care. And it's a big deal. We don't really have conflict in situations that we really don't care about. And if we do have a little minor blip in the road with something we don't care about or people that we don't have any relationship with, it's no big deal. We get it over quickly. We might mention it to our best friend, how this happened to me, and, and then it's gone. But when we care, conflict is going to happen. It just simply is because we are in 
relationships with other human beings, and we are human beings. And so Udea and Syntyche, they are in conflict. Now, first thing is we don't really know very much about these two women. It, it's really kind of all that we know about them, and as, they, as you dive into it and you read the scholars, apparently they are leaders in the church. And some people say that, well, you know why? He, he does two unusual things the Apostle Paul does. You might remember way back months ago when we began Philippians, he mentioned that to the elders and the deacons. Very, very unusual for his letters. And now we've got these two women. And so a lot of the scholars are saying, well, the reason is, is because these women were elders and deacons within the church. They were leaders of the house church. Says, we, we know that the church in Philippi was started by women, and it kind of spread in that way. And so we don't know very much about them, but we do know that they are leaders in the church, and we know that they cared. And so there was conflict. Something was going on. You know, I remember years ago, I was listening to Eugene Peterson and a, uh, a, a lecture that he, he was given to listen to a tape of it, and, and uh, you can tell it was years ago, it was a tape. I was listening to him, and he talked about going to visit some people who quit coming to the church. And so he went to visit them to find out, you know, why, how come you quit or whatever, and they said, oh, Eugene, Pastor Eugene, it's, Pastor Eugene, it's not, it's, don't take it personally, it's not, a, it's not any big deal. He said, we just sort of, you know, we really got into bird watching, and, uh, we just like hanging around with the people who, who, who are bird watchers. We all kind of get along and, and, you know, and we just kind of feel God out in nature. And it's just, it's just way easier than, than what was going on at the church. And so we just, you know, we just sort of drifted off. And I remember what Peterson said. He said, of course, it's way, way easier to be a member of a bird watching community than the church. Because a bird watching community doesn't matter if flipper beans. I mean, yeah, yeah, I suppose you could. You can count the birds, you know, for ecology and earth care and all that sort of thing. But if all you do is get together to watch birds, Eugene says, I mean, not a whole pile of stuff there about conflict unless you claim you've seen a bird somebody else didn't see or something like that. But in the church, we're dealing with stuff that matters. We're dealing with the kingdom of God. We're dealing with people's eternal life, your children's eternal life, your friends' eternal life, your workmates' eternal life. We're dealing with how I am doing inside of my heart and whether it's broken or whether it's rejoicing. And we're dealing with walking together in the midst of it and we're dealing with the disappointments where people that we've been counting on let us down. You see, in the church, things matter. And we've got this idea that we're supposed to really deeply love each other and be involved in each other's lives. And when we do that, we're going to mess up. Sometimes we're going to say the wrong thing. Sometimes we're going to say nothing when we should have said something. Sometimes we're not going to be there. When we thought, we're going to mess up and there's going to be conflict because as Peterson says, it just matters a whole pile more than counting how many sparrows flew across the sky today. And so there's bound to be conflict. And this is what had happened with these two women in the church. They cared. And so they got into conflict with each other. So we don't know much about them, but we just know that they were somehow very influential in the church, leaders in the church, and they cared. We don't really know what the conflict was about. The New Testament right, scholars, they say, well, you know, the chances are it was on a practical matter, not a theological matter. It was on the way of doing ministry or it was in some relational things. And why does he say that? Here's why. Because whenever Paul, whenever there's a theological conflict, Paul is like up front, okay, here's the theology. Your theology sucks. Your theology is right. Conflict resolved. 
But he doesn't address any theological issue. This is probably a practical, relational conflict. Otherwise, Paul would spell out, here's, here's the true theology. Here's what you need to believe. And so this is, this is the kind of conflict that we are all too familiar with. It's important to us. It's relational. And it's practical. And it's serious. It's serious. Because it looks like this may well divide the church. As you, if one of the threads that we said at the beginning that, that kind of weaves its way through, through Philippians is, is, is this conflict and this potential blow-up of the church. As a matter of fact, a good number of the people that study Philippians say that this point right here, this whole little deal in these little verses of I plead with you, Udia, I plead with you, Sinteke, to get along, they say that that actually is the point of the whole letter. That Paul has heard that these women are in conflict and it's a serious thing because when brothers and sisters and sisters and sisters and brothers and brothers get in conflict and it comes into the church, it's a very, very serious thing. We know that because Jesus high priest prayer, Right? Chapter 17 of John, the whole deal is unity. God, keep him in unity. As I am in you and you are in me. So this is a big deal. It's probably the point of the letter. And the truth is that no matter how mature you are, if you care, if you care, sooner or later you'll run into some kind of a conflict over something. If you care and you're as close to each other as you should be, I guarantee you, if you get close to me, I will let you down. I will tick you off. Just ask Sheena. <laughs> the question is, what do we do? Well, we've already seen a couple of things. The first one is, is, is that we begin right now before there is conflict with setting up an atmosphere of success, the love and the joy and the crown and all those sort of things. And we are deliberate about that and courageous about that and we step out and we put our hand out or fist bump or whatever it is that we do because we need to create this atmosphere. The second thing is we need to conflict, confront the conflict. This is what Paul's doing. You see, it's very easy for us either, A, to feign shock, like, there's conflict in the church. How could they possibly do that? Why is anybody, it just, it, I've got to be careful. I get on a hobby horse and climb off. <laughs> we shouldn't be shocked that people who are close to each other, that are involved in the most important mission in all of the universe and all of history, we should not be shocked that we'll have conflict. And so we shouldn't be shocked about it. Neither should we deny it. Neither should we say, well, you know, let's just kind of brush it under the rug. Or let's just kind of drift off to another congregation because they won't really miss me anyway. And so, well, you know, let's just kind of... No! What Paul's laying out for us here is that, listen, when brothers and sisters get in conflict with each other, it needs to be confronted. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be addressed. It needs to be accepted. Hey, that's Okay. It's okay. If you're in conflict, it shows that you give a rip. And let's start there, because that is a good, good thing. Next. What he says to these women is that, listen, be of the same mind. 
aim for a common mind. You know, actually, that, that translation there for mind is a little bit weak because um, for us, you know, we kind of separate our, the mind and the heart. And we, we just sort of say, well, you know what? Uh, the idea is you sit down together and then you intellectually come to some kind of an agreement that's a solution for this conflict. No, that's not what Paul's saying. For those, for those folks, the mind and the heart, it was one whole thing. And so it's not just, you know, let's, let's have this intellectual approach now and sit down with, with Sheena, you know, we've got this conflict, we're going to sit down, we're going to uh, debate this out. I like that because I'm going to win because, you know, I can talk faster than Sheena. <laughs> I remember Sheena years ago, I've told her this before, it was one of the best things in my life. She said to me, you might be able to talk better than me, but you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's, not, it's more than this. What this is saying is it's not whether or not how well you can present your arm. What he's saying is no, you, what you've got to be is you've got to be in one with your heart and your mind and your being. Understand that you need to be bound together. Aim for this binding together of your heart and your mind. Why? Because the, the whole idea of being one mind is listen, cherish the same views. Stand side by side. Strive together towards an end that is good. And then you can have the same mind and attitude and heart. Which is, so it's like this. Here's me. And here's you. And here's the problem. And what he's saying is that, listen, what you need to understand is get that problem, get that issue, get that whatever it is you're having confidence, get it out front, separate from you, and then you stand together and say, look at, you know what we all want? We all want Jesus to be glorified in the midst of our relationship. We want Jesus to be glorified in our friendship. We want Jesus to be glorified in how we work through this problem within the church. And so here's the problem is right there. So we are going to come together and we're going to stand and we're going to look at the problem out there and united of heart, we're going to achieve the glory of Jesus because what we for sure want is the glory of Jesus. None of us who are followers of Christ in the midst of a conflict want Jesus' name to be disgraced. We want his name to be glorified. And what they're saying is, is have the same attitude. Say, okay, we've got this deal between us. How is Christ going to be glorified in the midst of this conflict that I'm having with you? And let's get on the same side and put the problem out there. Get on the same side. Have this common mind and common heart. Understand that until your hearts are together, the conflict's not over. It's not an intellectual deal. It's a loving of the Lord and therefore moving together. The intellect's part of it. But don't mistake Paul when he says, be of the same mind. It's not who can make the best argument. It's how do we together glorify Christ. Next he says, or he demonstrates for us, we need to seek help and we need to provide help. You know, it's a bit of a shocking thing, really. I mean, to think about this. You know, here he is, he's writing this letter, and, and he names these two women uh, in the church. He, it's very unusual for Paul to, to name names, unless he's saying, you know, this guy's coming and this guy's coming. But, but this is a very unusual thing. I mean, can you imagine? You, we're going to be wandering around new creation sometime. We're going to meet some lady, and then we're going to say, oh, that's you. 
Now, why does, why does Paul do that? Because he understands that really the Christian church is a place where conflict can come and get help resolving. And he, so he, he does this. He says, listen, you know, I'm going to name you. But he doesn't take sides. He, he, you notice how he says exactly the same thing to the, to the women. I plead with you, Udike. I plead with you, Sintike. I plead with you. Come on, get together. I implore you. I beg you. This is important. Let's work it out. Let's figure it out. Let's not divide the church. Let's not go our separate ways. Let's get back together of one heart and one mind. I plead with you to do that. And then he backs up and he says, listen, and I plead with you, my true yoke fellow, my true companion. Big argument, big debate. Is this, you know, is it a name or just some dude? We don't know. It doesn't matter. What well, point is, he's saying, listen, I want to ask you as the church, I want to ask you, brother, sister, some brother or some sister, somebody there that knows these two women can get involved and help mediate that conflict. And so he says, listen, I'm going to ask you, you know that these women are scrapping. You get in there and you try and help out. I understand that that's a dangerous position to be in. But the idea is we help each other out. You see, for the Apostle Paul, facilitating conflict resolution is one of the essential functions of the church community. And as Christians, we should be doing that not just within the church, but out there, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. We need to have the courage, not as nosy parkers, and I understand there's the danger, but man, if you're in relationship with people and you see a conflict... We need to be willing to get involved in that mess and try to help bring resolution to it. I, I've been on both sides, but I know. I mean, I've had to go to people with help. You know, I've had conflict with somebody and had to drag in some poor elder to try and facilitate it or work it through or whatever. And, and I've been in lots of situations where people are scrapping and I've kind of tried to do the mediation thing and all this sort of stuff. I mean, we just try to help. It doesn't always work. But man, at least we can give it a shot. And at least we can say, listen, we're a community, we're a people that believe in the resolution of conflict, not just the cessation of relationship when things come up. We seek help. Hey, I'm having this arm, I cannot understand a word that this brother is saying to me. Can you come and at least translate, because I'm just not getting what he's laying down. Or sometimes even to take initiative, you're a loyal yoke fellow, you get in there and you try and help. Next one's a toughie. We've got to be willing to receive correction. You see, what Paul understands is that these were two mature women. They were leaders in the church. They were co-workers with Christ. They were deeply devoted to the mission and to the person of Jesus. And they had this maturity, so Paul was confident that he would appreciate and participate in a better way forward. He had the confidence in them that he could put them up in front of the whole church and say, hey, you two women, come on. Come on. Get your hearts together. And he was confident that they had the maturity to be able to receive that admonition and even to seek help from the Christian community to come in and do it. It's not easy. There's a guy at Lincoln Christian Seminary who has this little saying could be mine. Seldom wrong, never in doubt. But we have to be. We have to be ready to receive correction. Because at least half the time, I'm the problem. 
That's tough, but ain't nothing compared to the next one. Ho, ho, ho. This is, this next one, it's the one that the Holy Spirit, oh, weak with me. <laughs> Sweet reasonableness. Sweet reasonableness. Verse 5, it's, it's translated in NIV this way. May your gentleness be evident to all. Huh. May your gentleness, in the midst of conflict, if somebody looks at me having a conflict with my brother Nick here, if they're, if they're watching us having a brawl, they better see in me gentleness. They better see in me sweet reasonableness. You see, that word for gentleness is kind of a unique word, and it, truthfully, it's a very, very difficult word to translate. We don't really have a good English word to, to capture. Gentleness kind of gets there, but it, it sort of means like a, have a humble attitude. Have patient steadfastness. A steadfastness which is able to submit to injustice without hatred or malice, but trust the Lord. A steadfastness and patience which is able to submit to injustice being done to me without hatred or malice growing in my heart because I trust the Lord. Sweet reasonableness. It goes beyond justice. It's the idea of going beyond the letter of the law, even when you are right. I love what Ross Hastings said. He said this. It is to relinquish the right to be vindicated. To relinquish the right to be vindicated. To be willing to say, even though you know you are right, even though you know you have been wronged, even though you know if Jesus was right there in the middle of it, he'd say to this other sucker, you're wrong, Alan's right. Even though you know that that is your position, you don't do everything that you need to do to be vindicated and shown that you're right. And if you're disagreeing with me after a couple of weeks and I'm shown to be right by everybody else, I don't delight in it. I don't, I don't need to do that. Because I have sweet reasonableness. And my reasonableness says that they, they have a reason for their position, or they have a reason for what they're doing, and maybe it's their pain in their life, or maybe it's their experience of life, or the way in which they've taught, or their thinking, or they understand scripture, or whatever it is. There's a reasonableness, so I can understand that they have a different position, and it's sweet, and I say, okay. I don't have to be right. I don't have to win the argument. I don't have to have my way. And I can be sweet about it. I got a couple of hours more work to do on that one. Well then, you know, having dealt with this issue of conflict with one another, then he gets serious. 
Because you start to talk about the conflict within ourselves. That deep stuff which tears you apart, which keeps you awake at night, which sometimes can bleed into hating yourself or whatever the case may be. And he's got a few things on, on how, how do we handle the conflict within ourselves? I mean, that other stuff, you know, we say is we deal with. But man, you want to talk about the stuff that sticks with us? It's the fights we have with ourselves inside, isn't it? So how do you do that? Oh, well, he starts off, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, in my mind and in my heart, I don't always experience joy when I'm experiencing going through the trials of life. But here I'm confronted with the word of God who says this to me, Alan, rejoicing in the midst of internal fighting and external pressures, rejoicing is a choice. No, it isn't. Oh, yes, it is, because God's word says it is. No, it isn't. Oh, yes, it is. I don't like agreeing with it. And God knows that I'm not going to agree with it. And I suspect that maybe you don't agree with it too. And so he says, listen, rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, you want to argue about that? You want to say you don't have a choice? You want to say the situation different? Tell you what, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Wow. So the first deal with my internal conflict is my, has this whole thing to rejoice in the Lord. Now, how do I, how do I process this? As I prayed through this and thought about this and studied it, three things sort of kind of helped me get over my hump of saying, you've got to be kidding me. Number one is I've got to remember that the Apostle Paul wrote this. And the Apostle Paul wrote this from prison. And the Apostle Paul wrote this from prison, not knowing the outcome of the trial that he was in the midst of. And this prisoner who had suffered right from day one in Philippi. And then you go back to the book of Acts, chapter 16, right? I think Philippi is established. And what happens to Paul? They lay a beating on him, and they throw him in jail. And they shame him in front of the whole city. That's, that was their idea for doing that. That's when they said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. They kind of freaked out because they shouldn't have done that. So from beginning to end, Paul with the Philippians, they understood this guy knows what he's talking about when he's talking about suffering and pressure and the things that are difficult and, 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 and should I have gone to Philippi and is Jesus really risen from the dead and is this ministry really valuable and should I have just said, no, keep making tents and all, all that internal stuff. He's going through all of that and he says, this guy says rejoice in the Lord always. Number two, I told you a few weeks ago that my favorite definition of rejoicing is called Bart's. It's a defiant nevertheless. Just remember that the idea is that I might have all kinds of stuff going inside of me and I might not feel very joyful and I just might want to be sorrowful and I might want to be angry, which is more likely than sorrowful for me. But I have this choice to say, no, in spite of what happened to me in my childhood, in my marriage, in my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my school, whatever the deal is, I'm going to say a defiant nevertheless. I'm going to say compared to being in the Lord, because that's the whole thing. Remember we did that whole deal, rejoice in the Lord. Remember we said it can mean two things. 
It can mean take joy in what we have in the Lord. That we have forgiveness, that we have community, that we have grace, that we have goodness, that we have the Holy Spirit. All kinds of things. And, and we can focus in on who, what we have in the Lord. What we have in the Lord. I'm in the Lord and so I have these things. And these other things uh, might be pressing inside of me. And I might have these internal messages telling me all kinds of stuff. But I am in the Lord because Jesus said, I'm worth dying for. And these voices, which can tear you apart, should be silenced by the voice of the Messiah who says, you are mine. And I love you. And I delight in you. And I saved you. And I'm redeeming you. And I'm healing you. And I'm with you. I can rejoice in those things and listen to the voice of Jesus. And I can rejoice in the Lord. I can just be thankful for the God we have and who he is. A God of mercy and a God of grace and a God of forgiveness and a God of power and a God of kindness. A God of humility. A God of patience. The God of long-suffering. And when I've got that stuff going inside, if I can just, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, lift my eyes from myself for a minute and silence the lies that the enemy has put inside my heart and look at Jesus, suddenly I can begin to rejoice in the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord and I remember that God is a God who is not surprised by anything that I am, anything that I've done, or anything that I'm going through. And the God that I have that I can take joy in is that he is not a powerless God. He is a God of power. A God who whispers and mountains shatter. And I remember that I have a God who is not mean-spirited, but is kind and good and saving. And so I need to plan for that internal conflict and negativity, whether they're because of changing circumstances have sort of brought this stuff all up over again. And instead of looking at the changing circumstances, I fix my mind on the unchanging God, this Lord of creation who is for me and not against me who wants to send his spirit as a flood and wash away all that junk and wants to come in like a fire and burn away all the lies that you've maybe been told all your life. And those voices that were out to destroy you has now become your own voice and you find yourself destroying yourself. And the spirit wants to come in and burn those voices up and bring healing deep inside you so that we begin to speak to ourselves the truths of Christ. Hmm. 
And then he says, be anxious for nothing. Bad translation. What it really says is, stop being anxious. Because you see, he knows that anxiety is going to come into all of our lives. And what he's saying is that, look, when you get to the place and you realize that you've got, you know, anxiety starting to creep up in your life, he says, hey, 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 stop being anxious. Stop being anxious. Because anxiety is going to come. Just as conflict will come, some level of anxiety is going to come. We all get anxious about different things, you know. I was thinking about this this week because I was writing the sermon, so obviously I was thinking about it. How does that go together? I think, you know, I'm, not, I'm basically not an anxious person. I mean, I went to, it was a funny thing, when I went to get my cataract surgery there, you know, they haul you into this little room, you're all sitting there waiting to get, you know, whatever's zapped or whatever they do in, in there. And, uh, and the people before me and after me, they're like, uh, this one guy was really anxious. He came out and he was shaking still. He said, oh, that was good, you know, but I did best of this thing. They said, well, how did you do best? And the guy said, well, because you can have a Zantac. Is that the name of the drug, Zantac? Zantac. And so the guy beside me, great big guy, big tough guy. You know, I've had conversations with him before, you know, big trade guy. Zantac, now you're talking my language. He says, give me one of those things. So but I didn't, it didn't, you know, it wasn't anxious. But Sheena says, I'm twitching all night long these days. Because I'm anxious for the church. Because of this financial deal we're in. Holy jump. We have offerings. And we have programs. And we have buildings. And we have staff all to achieve this mission that God has given this church in this city. And those things need to be in balance or it doesn't happen. And they ain't in balance. And there's no easy answer. There's just pain. Whichever way it goes. So I have anxiety. Don't sleep. Keep sheen awake, twitching, (laughs) twitching. So what, Alan, stop being anxious. Huh. I kind of like sleeping. I don't want to be anxious. It's kind of an unusual thing for me. I've never really gone through much like this before. Mostly because I'm oblivious to most things that go around me. So now let me, let me say this. Anxiety is a very complex thing. And there's a couple of dangers when you read that stuff in the passage, you know, do not be anxious for anything or stop being anxious. That's a little bit better. It's very easy for one or two um, dangerous things to happen with what I'm about to do right here. Number one is the enemy wants to come and heap shame on you if you're an anxious person. If you're kind of a fearful person, an anxious person or whatever, the enemy is right here in your ear saying... Huh. Call yourself a Christian? Claim to have faith? Say that you trust in Jesus? Listen to your heart. It's pounding half the time. You're not sleeping. And so, and so this whole thing, we can have a whole pile of shame because we think, well, you know, Christians should never experience anxiety. Paul writes this because Christians do experience anxiety. Let me just say that so you can say, Satan, get lost. This is in here not to shame me. 
but to say, yeah, I have brothers and sisters who also are anxious, and God wants to help me through that with each other. Number two problem is what I'm going to say might sound a bit glib and trite. Let me say this. Well, first of all, let me say two things. Number one, it's not going to be glib and trite if we actually do it. But number two, anxiety is complex. And there's a lot of things that need to go into a solution. Sometimes it's counseling. Sometimes it's medicine, you know, drugs, meds. What I'm going to talk about is kind of the spiritual side of it. We're whole people, right? And so these things, these things all work together. And so, you know, if you need to go and see a doctor, you need to go and see a counselor, all those things, man, life is too short. Get the do it, <laughs> whatever. Why would you live in this? Okay, so what I'm going to talk about is just the kind of the spiritual side. Does that make sense to you, understand? Okay, no shame. Do the whole shooting match to fix up what needs to be fixed, okay? Now, so what does he say on this whole thing here on, on, on this? Well, I, I appreciate Greg Groeschel. He's got a, he's got a good uh, series, sermon series on this. He actually wrote a book, not in the mind, on this. Because Groeschel, uh, do, you know Craig, do you know that name, Craig Groeschel? He's one of the big guys now, you know, big international, huge church, whatever. And he'd never had anxiety. And then, and then suddenly it hit him. He said, and I couldn't sleep and I couldn't eat. And I was losing weight and all this kind of stuff. And so he wrote, did the sermon series and he wrote this, this book on it. And I appreciate what he said because what he said is this. He said, look, you know when you're driving along in your car and the red engine light comes on and it means, oh, take this to the mechanic or take this to the... Builder, right? Like, okay, this is not a good thing. He said, you need to understand that anxiety is your red light coming on. It's just there to say, hey, something's up. Something needs addressing. And what you need to do is you need to take it to the one who can help you do it, the designer of it all. Anxiety is the red light that says, Alan, pray. Pray. I appreciate Sherry. We had our little financial, you know, discussion on the table, and Sherry was like, "Do we have a prayer group on this, <laughs> on this whole deal? You know, because that's it. You have anxiety. Pray. It's, it's this red light. Come on, hey, you need to pray." Gordon Fee, when he's talking about this, he says this. Listen, uh, the answer to anxiety is Christ sufficiency, not self sufficiency. See what he's saying? Very easy for us to throw it back on the other person. Hey, you should do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Yeah, you want to compound my anxiety? I've been trying to think about doing this and this and this and this. And he said, no, no, you understand that when you've got that thing, it's because this is your being saying to yourself, Jones, this is bigger than you. And so you need to go to the one who's the biggest. Because it's not self-sufficiency, it's Christ-sufficiency. And so he says, pray. And what do you say? He says, pray with prayers and petitions and present your request towards God. Now, it's not that he, there's all these three different kinds of prayers. There's little nuances, but that's not the idea. What, basically what he's saying is this. Listen, when you've got that red light going on of anxiety and you realize that this is bigger than you and you don't know what to do and you're going into this situation, da, da, da. What he's saying is this. Listen, pray, pray, pray. That's what he's saying. Pray, pray, pray. Because you're not sufficient for it. Don't feel like you need to be sufficient for it. I understand that this is why Christ is there. This is why he wants it. It's why we sing these songs. Holy Spirit, come. And then we tell ourselves, so receive this healing. Receive what it is that God has for us in the midst of this. 
So pray, pray, pray. Because the only way to rejoice in all things is to rejoice in the Lord. Point one. Go back to him. But here's the thing that I'm trying to work through, and I think it's helping me. You know how something kind of helps you, but you're not sure if it's helping you yet because you've got to work it through a bit more? That's kind of where I'm at with this. Because he says, pray, 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 and then he says, and pray with thanksgiving. So I'm trying to work that through. Pray with thanksgiving. So what does that mean? In the midst of my battle with myself, this fight inside myself, pray with thanksgiving. I think at least a couple of things. Number one, and this, this is hard. It's the idea that it expresses a willingness to accept whatever answer God gives. That, you know, I might have my druthers as to how things would go in whatever situation with the church and the finances or whatever. I might have my idea, man, if, if just this would happen, if just if, 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 if. But to pray with thanksgiving is to say, Lord, we've got this situation and it is, I, <laughs> but I know that you will do whatever is right and best and good for the kingdom and for your name and ultimately for us. And so because I have faith, hopefully, I can pray with thanksgiving because I'm going to say I'm willing, Lord, to accept whatever answer and circumstance and situation you bring about at the end of this. That takes faith. But when I come with these prayers and these petitions and I'm anxious about it and I'm saying, Lord, I'm not sufficient, but you're sufficient. And Lord, I'm going to trust in your sufficiency that in your grace and in your mercy and in your efficiency, whatever happens that you take me through and are with us through this, it is going to be right and ultimately good. It's a willingness to accept the answer that God has, which may be different than the answer that I want. And the second thing about thanksgiving is, because grace is at the center of thanksgiving. It's in the word there. And it's to look back on the acts of grace in my life so far. That when we're facing these situations that are bigger than us, that we're not sufficient for, that are causing anxiety, that have got some internal conflict inside of us that we can't fix, it's to look back on those times in my life and these times in history where God has been gracious to get me through. And through times when even I thought, man, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't going right. How could this be possible? With enough distance, we begin to see God's grace in the midst of it. And it's to go back and to look at those times of grace and say, God, I know that you're a God of grace. And so I give you thanks that you're walking with me through this in grace. Prayer is essential. It's an essential weapon in the arsenal when it comes to those inner conflicts that we have. Let me just say one last thing, two last things. Just real quick, hopefully. <laughs> I don't know how I practice these and they're like 20 minutes long and I get up here and start blah, 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 blah. Anyway. 
That's a good thing. Lost my mind. Two thoughts. Oh, yeah. A couple of foundational things here that, that, you know, those were specifics. Now there's a couple of foundational things. Two, uh, a foci for the mind and practice. Two things that we can focus on. Number one, right in the middle of all of this, he says, the Lord is near. And he kind of puts that in the middle because it, it, it's, it's sort of something that he wants to tie all of these things together. This reality that the Lord is near. Now it can be near in two different ways. Number one, the, the one that we think of perhaps right away is that the Lord is near and that he is present. He is right here. That Jesus is with you in the midst of these things. Whether they be interpersonal conflicts or the conflicts that I have within myself. The Lord is near. And it's a motivation to know that the Lord is near. And if I'm in conflict with you and I really realize and remember that Jesus is right there, I'm going to practice a whole lot more sweet reasonableness because Jesus is standing right there. And not only that, but I'm going to be able to remember that Jesus is right there so he can provide me with the sweet reasonableness that I need to practice to get through this conflict that I'm having with you. And he is with me in the midst of my challenges because he cares and he's powerful. He cares about your conflicts, internal, external. He cares. And he is powerful enough to meet the need. It is this whole thing, you know, these, with, with healing prayers, if you've ever gone. And one of the practices in healing prayer is to, to go back to the situation that is causing the agony of your life and maybe, or the conflict with somebody else or the internal voices that are lies. And to go back into that situation to say, do you understand that Jesus is near, that Jesus is right there with you? And what is it that Jesus is saying to you in the midst of that? Because Jesus is near. It also means, hey, Jesus is near. That my, it could also mean the time for Jesus' return is near. And this helps us keep context. That whatever it is that I'm wrestling with, fighting with, upset about, all those things, you know what? Jesus, his time, his time for return, it's close, it's near. When all things are going to be right and new creation takes place and all of this junk is going to be gone and there will be no more tears. The Lord is near. And finally he says, listen, remember the joy of the virtues. That's what verses eight and nine are all about. Brothers, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Think about those things. Meditate on them. Chew them up. Remember them. You see, so many of these conflicts happen in our mind, don't they? I mean, even if I'm in conflict with somebody else, you know, after I've had the bit of a conflict, how many conversations do I have afterwards, redo that conversation, or next time I see him, or next time I see her, and that way I'm going to win this conflict, or this stuff that goes on inside of us. And he's saying, listen, focus on these things, because it sets you up for joy, and resolution of conflict with others, and resolution of healing with the conflict you have within yourself. You know, it's not just the scriptures that have this. The ancients used to say, these virtues bring joy. They just do. It's a, it's a truth. So you're going to have conflict. You're going to have conflict with other people if you care, and you're going to have conflict inside yourself, probably because we all had human parents. So we need a plan. What's your plan? It's going to need adjusting, but what's your plan? For me, out of this whole thing, if I try and boil it down, 
It's number one is to try and do everything I can to create within every environment in which I'm in an atmosphere that verse one describes of love and beloved and homesickness and joy and crown. I'm going to try and work at creating that in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to keep asking the Holy Spirit to, to grant me sweet reasonableness. I'm going to remember the presence that the Lord is near. And I'm going to pray that his truths will be what my voice, hear, what my voice says rather than the voices of the enemy. You know, I was my devotions this morning. If you do the one-year Bible, you're in Hebrews and just finishing up chapter 11. And this morning, I, I came upon this verse which has to do with, with conflict. It's really quite interesting. And this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. It's talking about um, dude that led them out of Egypt. What's his name? Moses. By faith, he left Egypt... Not fearing the king's anger. There's, a, there's the conflict right there. Fear, internal conflict, external conflict, the king's anger. Why? He persevered. Because he saw him who is invisible. This is our prayers. This is our songs of praise. This is our communion. This is our sharing hearts with each other. It's in all of these things. We get to see the invisible. We get to see the living Christ who is near. And we get to have the Holy Spirit wash over us like an ocean. And wash away all the junk. And come in like a fire. And burn away the lies. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. We have conflicts because we are people and we are broken and we care about things and we get disappointed and we get afraid and we've been told lies and we believe lies and just it's so exhausting sometimes. But you are near. You are near and you are God Almighty. And so we choose to dwell on the things of you and truth. We think to choose to dwell on you who is true, you who are noble, you who are right, you who are poor, you who are lovely, and you who is admirable. And in you, we find the peace that passes all understanding, an unreasonable peace. And when we fix ourselves upon you, you guard our hearts and our lives. And for this we give you thanks through Christ, our Savior. Amen.